Dr. Amy Fogelman is back for a follow-up interview. She is the founder of a medical legal consulting firm, which she founded in 2018 called MedLaw Consulting. She's matched almost 400 expert witnesses with attorneys and has helped medical professionals land and keep expert witness businesses and grow their business on top of opining on a ton of cases herself. And she actually has a course for physicians that we talk about during the show. So today we talk about her first case and what she learned from it. Now, she couldn't talk that much about it because it never went to trial, so it's not public information. So then we also talked about her first case that did go to trial because she's able to talk more freely about it because it's public information. So we really learned a lot about just talking about those two cases. We also talk about what she would have done differently early on in her medical malpractice career and what I should do once I get my first case. Now, I've done a lot of interviews about MedMal, but I actually haven't done a case myself yet. So if you've got one for me, general otolaryngologist here, you know, send it my way. So we also talk about CVs and how to make your CV more appropriate for medical legal consulting. Dr. Fogelman is a board-certified internal medicine physician for 18 years, seeing patients at ambulatory practices in the Boston area. She went to med school at Boston University and did her residency at Beth Israel in Boston, and then chief residency in primary care at the VA in West Roxbury. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Amy Fogelman, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Thank you, Brad. It's great to be here again. So let's talk about your first case, right? I'm sure there's a lot you've learned since then and things that you would do differently. And so let's use our retrospective scope to retrospective scope to, to, to dissect that. So yeah, first, just great. give us some, some generalities about the case. Yeah. So, um, I can talk to you about it in a general, in a general way, but, um, it's not public, um, knowledge because the case was actually dropped. Um, but the um actually sorry before we even get there yeah which brings us to another question yeah right like let's say you have a case that's that's not dropped like what are we what are we allowed to talk what about are we allowed we're qualifying to talk about? this right you're not a lawyer you're you're mm-hmm. a physician but still like that, what you're familiar well, with yeah so if a case were to go to suit and there was a um a trial and there was a decision made by the judge or the jury in a trial, then that's public public information. But until then, uh, things are 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 are, are pretty pretty um, you, you don't you don't talk about them. you know, I'm sure there's there's different um, rules in different states about what's public and what's not public, but just to be careful uh, because I can't keep it track of which state is what. I just, when, when in doubt, don't don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. Okay, okay. <laughs> That's interesting. I wonder if a case settles. It usually that... with settlement agreements, there's some stipulation that there's um, some confidentiality around got it. it. So it. you wouldn't get into the details of that. Got it. But if it goes to a jury trial, then that becomes public information, at least to yep. some degree. Got yeah. It. And okay. oh, absolutely. The the whole thing becomes becomes public. So then maybe if we have time, we can talk about another case as well that, you know, maybe a case that is public because then we can dissect it a little more. But let's start with your first case. Let's start with your first case. Yeah. So um, 
more than a decade ago. So I'm a primary care doctor for years. And um, one of my more experienced colleagues was doing a lot of expert witness work, but he did not have the experience on this particular issue with this particular type of patient, I'll just say. And so um, he referred it on to me and it was a medical malpractice defense case. So it was a primary care doctor who was being sued for missing a cancer diagnosis. And um, so I was like really excited and I got um, all these records and I reviewed them. And then I was like, wait, so confused about what I was supposed to be doing or thinking. It was, it was very confusing to me what exactly my role was. Um, and so then I talked to the attorney about my thoughts and, um, and then the case sort of ended up being, being dropped eventually from against the, the, the doctor. Um, so that, that was that case. Okay. So you reviewed the case, did your due diligence and then it was dropped. Okay. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. But that's the way that, so legal cases, the legal world is so slow that, you know, if you review enough of these things, you'll get, you'll have lawyers contacting you years down the line about a case that you reviewed years ago. And so it is really important to stay organized if you have more than one case or you can get them kind of confused. Um and so, um, because you, every, everything's quiet and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, we're going to deposition. Oh, we're going to trial. So there's, it has its own timeline that's different than what we're used to. Okay. So then in that situation, what would you have done differently? Okay. And, and, and anything? Cause it sounds like if it was just dropped. In the, no, no, okay, no, no, okay. no, no. I definitely would have done things differently. So what I would have done differently is that I did not at all understand any of the legal aspects of what I was doing. Like I kind of just went into it and thought, okay, I'm a primary care doctor. I've been doing this for a while. I understand this. I know how to treat this condition. I know how to diagnose this condition. So this is like a no-brainer. Why do I need to know anything else? But the problem is that um, if I I should have thought about at the very beginning what the legal question was that the attorney was asking me, because that colors the whole review that you do. And specifically, like, what does a stand, standard of care mean? Um, it's a, It's very technical, but it actually has specific meaning that's really important when you're doing reviews and a lot of doctors we don't we don't understand this because this was not taught to us in medical school obviously so first of all the first thing is to understand the um the burden of proof so it's different than in criminal trials where you always think beyond a reasonable doubt in civil cases it is not that you don't have to be that sure of your opinion. It's only, you only have to be, it has to be, um, it's 50, yeah, it's more than 50% likely. Yeah. That's the burden. So it's like, it's like, like that. Boop. So, okay. so, um, 
So when you're, for every question that you're asked, you only need to be more than 50% sure of your opinions. That's one thing. But the other thing is that standard of care is a legal term. And so, and it's typically, and it depends again on what state you're in, but it usually has to do with a reasonably competent healthcare professional in the same or similar community. Okay. And medical, so sorry, this is really technical, but I'll give you an example. Okay. And then medical negligence is like an action or an omission um, by a medical professional that deviates from the accepted medical standard. And again, those standards are based on what a reasonable person would do under the same or similar circumstances. So like, let's talk about, for example, an upper respiratory tract infection in a primary care clinic, okay? We know that antibiotics are being overprescribed. And in general, there are guidelines that are trying to tell us not to prescribe antibiotics for um, upper respiratory tract infections, except for certain, you know, instances, because they're trying to stop antibiotic resistance is bad. There's, you know, for all all the different reasons. Um, Actually, it's interesting you brought that up because I had to cancel an interview last night about antibiotic stewardship because uh, I have the flu. So, um, I you have, have a, flu? I have, well, ish. amazing. I'm, I'm, well, I'm better. I'm better. I'm better. <laughs> okay. I'm better. Last night. Not so good. Not oh so gosh. Good. So, yeah. Yeah. No, gosh. the whole house, the whole house had it. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. I'm, 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 I'm okay. Um, so I, yeah, so we will be, we'll have to reschedule that, but there will be a podcast oh, on that'll be antibiotic stewardship okay. Okay. that we had okay. to delay because I had a, actually turns out lower respiratory tract infection. <laughs> okay. So, um, so yes, we would say in general, you don't want to prescribe antibiotics if you don't need to, if there's not an indication, blah, blah, blah. But um, we also know that in practice, there are plenty of PCPs who prescribe antibiotics for all kinds of upper respiratory infections. And you know, which may or may not be indicated depending on the, 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 the details. And so the question is whether if, if you're, if you're, you're wondering whether a certain DV, PCP deviated from the standard of care, when let's say they prescribed Augmentin for a URI, the question isn't what would I do or what do the guidelines say? The question is what would a reasonable primary care physician do in the same or similar circumstances? And so you have to use that lens when you're reviewing the records. And um, if you use that lens, it will help you to understand what the heck you're doing. And, you know, I didn't understand that when I was initially doing this review. Um, and I, I, I just, I, I, I yeah. just want to clarify something for the listeners. And if you've heard any of the other um, guests that have talked about the medical legal system, you know, attorneys that are in this line of work are gamblers. And so what happens is if you have a high stakes case, like what you're describing is like a huge lens, a huge, you know, breadth of practice that could be considered the standard of care. So how are so many people being sued? Well, it's because there's a chance 
you could lose the case. There's a chance. There's the jury who is not an expert witness who's going to be swayed by a lot of the emotional aspects to this. And so with uh, especially with high stakes cases, high amounts of money, you might it might make sense for the lawyer for the plaintiff's attorney to take a case even though it's not a deviation from the standard of care because there's a chance that they'll make a significant amount of money either in trial or by settling because you might not want to risk going to trial. So, you know, what you're describing sounds like then we shouldn't have so many lawsuits if that's the case. But, you know, it's more complicated than that because because the how the the entire industry works. It is. And, and so, you know, I am, um, I was recently reviewing a case and I reviewed the report by the plaintiff attorney, um, sorry, the, the plaintiff expert. And it was clear that she just didn't understand. And sometimes they'll find experts who who don't understand these nuances and they'll say something, you know, and she was sort of like citing guidelines and it was like, you're missing the point here. <laughs> you know. Um, so I think it's really important that as physicians, yes, we're, we've, we've had years and years and years of training, but there is a little bit more training that you need to do if you want to do this work and you want to do it well. Okay. So, so, is there anything else that you would change about how you would have reviewed that first case? No, that would, that, that would that's the big, that, that's okay. the main thing, but I, but that's so inherently important that it would have changed the way that I, the lens in which I viewed that case would have been yeah. different. Um, and I don't know if I would have ultimately I don't, I don't know what I would have said to the attorney. I don't remember what I said to the attorney, but, um, but I'm sure that it would have changed that a little bit if I had understood what the heck I was doing. All right. Well then let's talk about a case that you can talk about in more okay. detail, sure. right? One that, that did go to trial. So now it is public yeah. information. So give us some background of that case. Okay. So <laughs> this is kind of a crummy case. Actually, it's not that interesting. Uh, I don't think it's going to be that interesting to your listeners. It's actually- I Keep listening a... anyway. Keep listening. Keep listening. <laughs> it's a, it was a um, personal injury case. So um, this woman was living in a house and they built um, a commercial real estate next to her home that caused a lot of like shaking and um, cracking of her foundation and a lot of like personal stress on her, you know, pain and suffering. Um, and so the attorney was mostly interested in, in saying, you know, that the, that they were bad neighbors and did all this stuff, but the specific opinion that he wanted from me was whether, um, because she developed shingles was whether, um, was whether that could have, um, you know, whether the stress that she had been under for, you know, because she mentioned this multiple times to the multiple people, um, whether this could have been a contributing cause to her um, developing the shingles. So that was my teeny tiny, um, you know, thing that I, that I opined on. And I said that, yes, it, it could have been a contributing factor to the fact that, you know, she had stress and that it developed, you know, that she developed shingles. Um, and that was that, but they, but the, they lost the case. <laughs> okay. Okay. 
you know, yeah. I, again, I think that's the legal system, right? You've got a big, rich real estate developer and this, you know, person who's now got an ailment and the jury, you know, many of whom may be retirees who have experienced shingles themselves are going to feel yeah. some empathy towards that individual. And yeah, that sounds like a case I'd take. Sure. Let's do it. It wasn't just about the shingles though. It, yeah. That was just, you know, a piece of it. <laughs> just yes, to say that was, that was a very small piece of the whole, the whole case. Um, there was black mold too, probably. And so they got <laughs> of an allergist. Course, of course, yes. Involved. Yes, there's always, <laughs> that always seems to be. Yes. Um, okay, okay. That, uh, I, still interesting though. Still, I mean, yes, pretty mundane material, but I still think like, you know, thinking about that is is is, is interesting. Okay. So so recently I got my first case. Uh, you know, I told you about it before the show. And then I, mm-hmm. I sent it to someone else because it was okay. I was a little a little out of my depth. Um, it was just something that I wasn't, um, I haven't dealt with since, since residency. Um, but you know, which is very smart of you to send it away. If it's something that you don't deal with on a regular basis, by the way. So it's very smart. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it would have been my first case. So I still have zero cases under my belt. So I'm not <laughs> sure, you know, um, so, um, but so I, I get a stack of papers from the lawyer. What? was he expecting of me? Right. Mm-hmm. Like what, what, when I'm, I know you said, right. As we're reviewing the case, we need to review it through the lens of um, the standard of care and how that's defined. Well, that's a, You have to ask them what the legal question is that they want oh, you to opine it. on. Cause there's different questions, standard of care, causation, like whether that thing, ca- like the, the shingles case, did yeah. that, did the stress cause her shingles? That's a causation question. Yeah. Um, and then prognosis, like, is this, is, did this change, you know, could it have changed the the condition had they diagnosed it sooner? And what's the, the, the long-term, you know, yeah, consequences yeah. If of like, this condition? If there's no sequelae, long-term sequelae, then there's no, there's no injury, there's no damages. Right. Um, but like, what are they, you, you had said in our last interview, mm-hmm. don't just email them. Because right. that email might be discoverable and you might be discussing things that could be used against them. So like, don't, just don't, don't do that without mm-hmm. talking to them. So what, what are they? Like, am I, my opinion, am I going to be like drafting a, you know, 10 page document <laughs> citing sources from PubMed? Like what? <laughs> like, what do you what? do? Yeah. So, okay. First off, before you get that pile of paperwork, and I'm sure I would hope that uh, Dan Salmon, Attorney Salmon, talked to you about this, but you should have them sign a contract um, and you should probably get a retainer, particularly if you haven't worked with them before. So, yes, those that are was just... the second interview with Dan Salmon. So, for all the listeners, <laughs> definitely check that out. We go okay. into a lot of detail about that. But yes. um, in terms of like, so, so you, you let's you, you have your contract, you got your retainer payment. So you get the stack of records. What I like to do, I like to have the records on um, like electronically and I have my, my computer has two screens. And so I put up the records on, on one screen and then I have like a, a, a word document on the other screen and I'll just kind of like copy and paste just to get a chronology, um, just to keep me organized. Because again, it may be, 40 years down the line when the attorney is 
checking, saying, you know, oh, by the way, this is going to trial. <laughs> you know, you're like, ah, what is this case about? So it's good, good process to kind of keep things organized. So you're going through the records, keeping in mind the legal question. And I, you, I like to take a take notes of the of the facts. So timeline, what happened? And then um, you track for your time for all of this. Don't generally put anything, you know, in writing that's an opinion um, at this point. Um, you may, if if you need to do some research, you could do, you know, if it's something that you really aren't sure about, it's, it's kind of reasonable to do a little bit of research, you know, before you talk to the attorney, but nothing excessive. So maybe look it up on up to date or whatever your you know if there's a look it up in your in your you know Harrison's medical book or whatever people use but just to to refresh something in your mind or to re reaffirm your your thoughts and then that's it and then you set up um by email a phone call to have with the attorney and then um that's your time to share with them your findings so you'll go over during that phone call. Generally, what I do is I say, do you want me to go over the, the chronology? So I'll review, they, they say yes. So I'll review what the records show. And then I'll tell them, you know, what my opinion is of the legal question that they asked me. And then they may have some questions, which is appropriate. You want them to ask probing questions that, you know, you might, oh, well, I didn't think about it that way. Or, you know, let me, I'm not sure, let me, let me get back to you on that. Or, you know, you may be very sure that either they, you don't think that they have a case if they're a plaintiff attorney, or, you know, you think that whatever your opinion is. So then the attorney will say, could say one of, you know, three things. They may say, thank you very much for your time. Um, send me an invoice for any additional, you know, um, for whatever extra work that you did and, um, you know, destroy the records. We're, we're done with you. <laughs> thank you and goodbye. Um, or they might say, thank you. Can you write a report? Um, or they may say, thank you. Um, we'll get back to you. When we hear back, we'll talk to our client and we'll get back to you. And so that's kind of the 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 way that that those things go. Um, certain states, there's no need to write a report. It, it sort of depends on 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 that. Um, but that's that's how you do it. And then in terms of the report itself, if you've never written one before, um, the easiest thing to do is just ask the attorney. Say to them, "Hey, do you have a?" a sample of a report style that you like and you can use that as your as your you know template and yeah. um you just want to make sure because this report is going to be something that you're going to use in the deposition it's like an open book test so you want to make sure that it's the the number one thing I would say is make sure that it's clear what records you reviewed because you don't want the opposing attorney to be able to say, have you seen this, you know, page 89 of, you know, on, on July the 5th of 1995 and 
if you have like, um, these are the records that I reviewed and you have them listed there, then you'll know whether you did or not. Um, and so it, it's kind of a pain to do that. But if you, if, if, but if you t keep good records, it's, it's easy, it's easy enough to do it. Yeah, yeah. And I would not recommend doing a super PubMed search that you're citing a bunch of places because those are things that you're then going to have to know inside and out for for to be able to be questioned on. So so yes, it's a reason you should cite things that are important, but don't this is not like your chance to like nerd out. Yeah. And it's um, not morbidity and mortality no. where you're a PGY two, and then you've got all the fellows and attendings grilling you. And no, no. that's not your audience. That's not what the audience is at all. Nope. Yeah. So you don't like, I, I made that mistake when I was doing the, the trial recently, I was like, Oh, why did I cite these things? <laughs> because then I had to, to like read these very, very, very carefully and know them. You know, the attorney didn't ask me anything about them, but it, I didn't yeah. know. And so I was like, why did I do that? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, don't yeah. like, and, and it's hard as an internist not to nerd out, but just don't, don't nerd out. <laughs> well, I think also losing sight of our role in this situation, right? Like we are the PubMed. That's why we're there because like they, Brad, they, you're right. they you're don't right. need to pour over the literature because that's your job. Your job is to know the material, you know, so that they don't have to. And so you are exactly. expert enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so and if not, in do addition, what I did. <laughs> don't take the case. Right. And in addition to not putting things like your opinion in the email that I'm glad you, I'm glad that, that you remember that from last time. The other thing is, um, you know, so if you have ever have a doubt, just get, give the attorney a call on the phone to talk about it. Um, and then the other thing is you don't want to surprise them with a huge bill. And so you want to communicate um, any kind of extra time that you're spending um, with them up front because that's going to put a, a really, you know, sore taste in, in sour taste in their mouth. If you like didn't say anything and then you send them, you know, a $10,000 bill that they're yeah. not expecting. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if they're not taking that case any further. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, a bit of a non sequitur now. Yeah. Because there's one thing that I we didn't speak about last time that I, I but I do want to talk to you about. Um, and that's resumes. Mm -hmm. Right? Like our CVs, our resumes. My resume looks pretty similar to what it did 11 years ago when I finished residency or 11 and a half when I finished residency and um, maybe a couple of the committees that I've been on. But that's it. But and yet the resume that we use for soliciting this type of business shouldn't look the same. Correct. I mean, so. This, this, your, your, um, I'm just going to call it a CV because it's not really a resume, but your CV for medical expert work, it's, it's very important. Um, and that's because it's, excuse me, it's very important because it's used by the attorney to decide if they want to hire you. So it's, it's almost like marketing, right? Okay. Um, and so you want to make sure that, that it's, 
looks impressive to anybody who's hiring you. But on the other hand, it's going to be used by the opposing, you know, counsel to try to discredit you. And so it needs to work to list everything that you want it to list, but it also has to be accurate. Um, and so it needs to be complete, but also accurate, which you, you just have to be very careful about that. I, I don't understand. What, why so, are people sending so, out CVs that are not accurate? Well, for example, if you have something on your CV that isn't on your LinkedIn, you know, they don't match up. The, the attorney on the other side could say, like, are you trying to say, like, when did you finish your residency? Was it in 2006 or was it in 2005? Are you fudging that? Like, you know, they could try to make it nefarious when, you know, there's not necessarily any bad intent but um so you you want to make sure that it's consistent with everything else that's available online um but like the order that you put things in the information that you put on there doesn't matter um and so there's no specific order that it needs to be and i'll say like i've reviewed hundreds of resumes because part of what i do is that i match um attorneys I, I find expert witnesses for attorneys. And so through that work, I've seen a lot of resumes and I've seen some that are really crummy. Okay. <laughs> and the ones that are crummy are ones where, um, well, I'll just tell you some like silly mistakes that people make. One is not using their real name. This is not as much a, an issue for um, for 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 men as much as it is for women, but it, it is also an issue for 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 men as well. But if you have like a hyphenated name and you want to just keep it like simple, and so you're only putting your your maiden name, but that's not the name that you that you were board certified in, or it's not the name that you have your license in, it can make it appear that you are um, not board certified because if your name is you know, Amy Gorin, I put that on my resume and then nobody can find, you know, Amy Gorin, is she board certified in internal medicine? They may think that I'm lying about that or that I don't have that certification. So that's like a silly mistake, but believe it or not, like sometimes people do that. And it tends to be with like the longer names that people do that, but you have to be accurate. (laughs) Like, don't try to make it simple. The other thing I've seen is, um, you know, forgetting to put things that are very um, impressive to attorneys. So attorneys really care about teaching. So any teaching experience that you have, even if it's not a formal, you know, you're the assistant professor at Harvard Medical School, even if it's just that you have, you know, medical students shadow you from, you know, the, the, the local medical school occasionally, that counts. And so you should put that on 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 your CV. Um, similarly, another one that that sometimes people don't do because they think it's um, they they just they'll put their private the name of their private practice, but won't put the put the names of the the hospitals that they're appointed with, or or you know maybe the most impressive hospital that you're appointed with. But but attorneys care about those hospital appointments. And so you want to make sure that that's listed there. Um, And the other thing is, because it doesn't matter what order it's in, 
um, you really um, want to put the most impressive things at, on the first page and then the least impressive things on the end. So, you know, I had a, a doctor who was quadruple board certified. I mean, like, wow, I was so excited about recommending him to this attorney. And then he sends me his resume. And, you know, the first page had the community college that he graduated from and like his foreign medical school. And not that those things are are bad, but they're just not as impressive as the quadruple board certification. And so, you know, he was he was doing an um something that wasn't and he he was shooting himself in the foot unnecessarily because that is just like, like I mean that's the way we all forward. have it. But that's the way we all have it. We all have it in chronological order, right? We have right, right. undergrad well, and then your yeah, medical school and then your residency and then your fellowship and then if you and, didn't you know, go research to, at the end. you know, Harvard or or Yale, your medical no one cares where you went to medical school. <laughs> like that does not like we know you have an MD, so it does so nobody cares. So yeah. put put the things that are more impressive. Yeah. And if you actually have extra time, it's even more impressive if you can put a like an executive summary, but in lay language, because attorneys don't understand. Um, they don't understand what a you know otorhinolaryngologist is. Um, they want to know what types of surgeries you do. They might not realize that that's the same type of person who does sinus surgeries. And so you really have to spell it out um, yeah. so that so that they know. And I would say oh. all of that stuff should also be on LinkedIn, because if you're interested in this work, LinkedIn is a great free place for you to, to show your show people that you're interested in this work. Is there anything that we should put on LinkedIn so that we can stand out? Um, I mean, I think having a summary explaining what you're known for in lay language is a great way to do it. And also, I know this is something that doctors don't like, but having an email address for for attorneys to be able to reach out to you is probably a good a good thing too, especially if you're not going to be on LinkedIn every day. You don't want to find that message, you know, a month later. Yeah. It's going to be too late. They're they're going to have selected somebody else. But um, in line, if you could put somewhere expert witness or um, you know, this is just expert medical expert, um, because those things are searchable in their yeah. keywords. And so that way you'll, you'll come up when they're, when they're looking. What about for the, so back to the CV, if we did, let's say we took a course, um, yeah. for instance, yes, my your course. course, right. <laughs> I would think that that would, you know, that would make us more appealing because now they know that we understand the assignment. Right, we know what's expected of us. We know what to do. We know how to not, not to end up in any any traps. So it's great to take a course for the, all the reasons that we talked about during during this. However, I would not put it on your CV oh. because um, that is something that then the attorney that's trying to discredit you is going to ask you all these questions about it in the same way that you don't want to cite. Um, 
you don't want to put a bunch of citations that you're going to have to ask answer questions about. You don't want to have to, you know, be on on trial about all of the the details of the course that you took. Yeah. Um, it's better just just to leave that off. Um, I've yeah. seen some some experts do that. I understand why they're doing that, but I think that it's probably better to just go in like a short email if you're sharing it with the attorney, like, hey, I took Dr. Fogelman's expert witness course. I'm certified, you know, I understand the assignment. I'm ready to go. Um, that is probably better than including it on your CV. Got it, got it, got it. So speaking of which, <laughs> where can we find the course? <laughs> um, you can find it at my website at amyfogelmanmd.com. Um, I teach it a little bit differently than some other people do. It's um, really a formula, um, the ABCs of how to um, systematically get into this work so that you will know everything that you want to know, everything from all the courtroom stuff, the business, and, um, and the marketing. And I know that is something that we feel uncomfortable to, to market ourselves, but to have a successful business, you need to know things like how to do your CV, how to do LinkedIn, and, and some other options out there that exist. Fantastic. Well, and actually, we're going to be having an episode on that very soon, I, I think next week, with uh, with Beryl Vaughn on how to market yourself to um, to to become a medical expert witness and really, really put yourself out there. How to, you know, do you have a website, you know, and, and other ways to get yourself out there. So, um, so stay tuned for that. One thing I will say about websites that's a little um, unpopular, a little controversial. But I don't think that doctors need need an expert witness website when you're just getting started, um, it, it, unless it's just as like a landing page where yeah. um, for attorneys to like be able to contact you. But that's that's why I think LinkedIn. You can just use LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, the issue is I've actually had attorneys not want to work with particular experts because of things they've seen on their website. So if you have a website, you need to do it well. Yeah. And um, and so and it's so subjective that um, that you can get into some trouble. Yeah. Yeah. I can understand. I can understand that. Well, some of us have websites already. So, you know, you can just add another page to it. And then totally. Then, there it goes. There it goes so. <laughs> Easy enough. Yeah. So Dr. Amy Fogelman, thank you again for coming back on the show. A lot of uh, great material. And uh, and given that our last interview was a year ago, maybe we'll have you back in another year. Exactly. We'll do this every, you know, after anyway. every Thanksgiving. Yes. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank thanks you, again. Brad. I appreciate it. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.